0: theyeshiva.net Today's class is dedicated by Dana Amira in memory of her beloved parents and grandparents, Gabriel and Selma Amira, Nissim and Suzanne Amira, Samuel H and Dana Baruch, and for a complete and speedy recovery and a shidduch for Dana Bat Selma and Agmar Kasimaitova. To her and all of us, thank you very much for your partnership and Dedication and friendship, and a great year to you. Thank you. So, somebody asked me a question, and the question, really, I felt was a really it was a sincere question. It came from a very sincere person, and I want to share this question with you and try to address it here, because I think that the, what this person a woman was articulating in her email was really something very genuine that I think many people ask or want to ask or, or feel in one way or another. And what she wrote to me was that her experience of Yom Kippur every year is a very difficult one. Not so much the fasting <laughs> that I'm not going to be able to address in the class. For that there's probably different methods that you know better than I. But Rather, what really is tough for her are the abundant confessions. The viduyim. The amount of times that Jews on Yom Kippur, especially if you dove in all the Tfilas, which means Mairiv and shachris and musaf and Mincha and Ne'ilah, but even only one of them or two of them. <coughs> Whether you follow all of the liturgy, all of the piyutim, all of the chazars, hashats, all of the sections, or just 50% or even 10%, it's filled with constant statements and reminders about our sins and our guilt and our averis and our chatoyim, avoinis, pshayim, transgressions. And she tells me, I have anxiety on a good day. <laughs> Forget him, Kippur. On Simchastor, I have anxiety. Certainly on Purim. <laughs> okay, a lot of people have anxiety on Purim. Uh, <laughs> but even on a regular Wednesday or Tuesday, I have anxiety. And... Uh, when I, I say, I can't find my soul in it, it's like I, I'm, we're constantly talking about, you know, we shouldn't say, Tzadikim Anachno, V'loychatol, Anachno, V'seinu, and ashamnu, Bagadnu, and gazalnu, which is every day's tachnu. but Yom Kippur, it assumes much more quantity. I mean, we say it many more times. And the language is obviously much more intense and much more elaborate, because that's one of the main themes of Yom Kippur. Confession, viduya, mechilah, slicha, kapara, tshuva, and all of that. But then she added something else, which was, I think, even more interesting. And she said, "But assuming that I had amazing (laughs) self-esteem, assuming that I suffered from no anxiety whatsoever, my resilience level was top level. My confidence, my inner confidence, and sense of attachment and connection to my, you know, the earliest influences of my life." were really solid. I had this gift for just inner calmness and serenity, and I I loved myself, and I did not engage in self-loathing, like the three and a half people who live on the planet without any anxiety. And I think they're all here in this class, those three and a half people. (laughs) Maybe after the class. Maybe more than three and a half people. Assuming assuming I, I dealt with none of this, I was really completely confident. And therefore have no problem saying, I made mistakes, I'm sorry. Because, and the truth is, here I'm, I'm, I'm giving commentary, and Rashi to her email. But the truth is that saying I'm sorry, confessing one's mistake, is actually a glorious thing, right? It's really a wonderful thing. It's really a tremendous opportunity. Let's take it in a relationship between people. What's the great, what, are, what types of marriages or relationships, friendships, are the greatest friendships and marriages? It's not the ones where people never get into a disagreement. I mean, that's amazing, but you know, how many people do you have like that? <coughs> it says that the Malachim, the angels, God, even between them, he has to make peace. Shalom even those who are on high, he has to make shalom between them. And they're malachim about whom it says they don't have kinah and tachros, they don't have general jealousy and competitiveness. Okay, it's on a different level. But Aisha Shalom Imraimov. So the fact is that in most relationships, we're less than perfect, we make mistakes. And the power of a relationship is not that I don't make a mistake, it's what happens after I make the mistake. It's what happens post-conflict. And the idea that do we know how to make up? Do we know how to make amends? Do we know how to repair things? That's really where a relationship is both tested and blessed. It's true with parents and children. It's true with friends. It's true with true with partners. It's, of course, true with spouses who have such a close and intimate relationship. But it's true with every connection in the world unless you're, you're a complete stranger to me so we never get into a fight because we never see each other but if we have connections if it's siblings or friends or marriage partners etc naturally there will be misunderstandings people are less than perfect people will make mistakes say the wrong things do the wrong things etc etc mela what happens afterwards is what happens the next step do we stonewall each other do we drift away can't I not look the other person in the eyes anymore? Could they not look me in the eyes? Do I carry it? Do I carry the hurt and resentment and pain for weeks, months, maybe years, maybe decades? Maybe I don't even, I don't even know how much I carry it. That's really where relationships fail or succeed if we have a method of reconciliation, of talking about it, of coming back to the table. I mean, these are Dvarim Pshutim, right? Everybody agrees with me. You know, it's obvious, yeah? It's not obvious? Okay. But 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 this is a very tr- this is a very true observation about life. And that is that the power of any marriage or any familial relationship is not that everybody's always on the same page. Because that means either they're mamish angelic, impeccable, perfect people, or they're not individuals. People who are individuals were not always on the same page. We're not supposed to be on the same page. The netziv writes the netziv writes he was the Rosh Hashiva of Valojan and he has a commentary on Chumash called Ha Megdavar. And he writes that, his name was Rabbeinu Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin. Nitziv is Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin. And he writes in his commentary that when Hashem introduces the first marriage, of course, Adam and Chava, a match made in heaven, pun intended, it says, Adam Right? That's how Hashem introduces the idea of a relationship. It's not good for Adam to be alone. So let me create for him an Azer, a help. Kenegdai, but Kenegdai we all know is a problematic word because it literally means against him. So Rashi and Chazal asked the question is she for him or is she against him? You know, are you Mishalanu, Halanu, Atalitzarenu? What a strange way to describe the f- first wife in history, Azer. Okay, a helpmate, that's beautiful. You know, we're partners, we help each other navigate the turbulent waters of life navigate the beauties and challenges of life, what's this kinegda, <laughs> against him, parallel, like, what does it really mean? And Chazal struggled with this because it's a very unusual and uh, strange expression. that you would, not. It's not an unusual expression, but it's an unexpected, that was the word, unexpected expression in this context. So the Natsiv says something very powerful. The truth is it was already said two generations earlier by the Balatanya on a spiritual level, but the theme is the same. And that is, he says, that sometimes the greatest help You need in life is from somebody who sees things differently than you. I don't need somebody, I will not get enhanced. My horizons will not expand by being in a marriage with somebody who's just like me. Yes, it may be more comfortable sometimes. It may be more easy sometimes. It may be simpler. It may be smooth and serene. But what allows you to become the person you're really capable of becoming? What allows a person to achieve deeper greatness? Transcending my comfort zone. Zones. Transcending my fears. Transcending my insecurities. Transcending my wounds. That comes when I'm challenged. That's what he says. By kinegdai, By somebody who is against me in the sense, I don't think that Nitziv was advocating that it's a mitzvah, that a husband and wife should disagree. What he was advocating is, is that a real relationship includes two distinct people coming together. There's a t-shirt I once saw, very easy to get along with, once you learn to worship me. Over there, there's no connector. You know, you learn to worship me, and we're good. (laughs) It also doesn't mean one person gets repressed, or one person suppresses, or one person has to emotionally run away, or overwhelm, dominate, which are two sides of the same coin. Either I dominate, or I run away, but it's the same thing. I can't remain present and create space for the other person. So the fact that there is a kinegdoi is inherent to the very fabric of a successful and meaningful and authentic relationship. So the problem is not disagreements or kinegdoi. The issue is, do we have a system of repair? What they call conflict resolution. Do we have a method for conflict resolution? And in that sense, Yom Kippur is a very glorious day. The most glorious day. The opportunity for... Resolution of all conflicts. The, oppo- the opportunity for, for reckoning, for self-reflection, for introspection. The opportunity for a person being honest with themselves and with their loved ones. Honest with their soul and of course honest with the Rabbi Nishalot. That opportunity to be able to really not just ignore my mistakes and run away from my mistakes. But confront me in the most profoundest, authentic, real exposed way where I lay my soul beer what better method for a real relationship where I can imagine a relationship between people where two people could be really honest what were the motivations behind what I said what was I thinking what was triggering me there was a couple that uh, <coughs> recently <coughs> excuse me There's a couple that came for advice about a particular a particular issue and uh, <coughs> excuse me so the husband came to me first and he said that he's very triggered by things his wife says and he knows that he's not triggered by what she's saying. He's triggered by what he hears her saying based on his own brain, based on his own neural pathways. In other words, based on his own issues, which is a tremendous awareness. You know, that itself is a tremendous source of awareness. You know, In our marriage workshop, this was like a, a major theme. You know, when I can become aware that I'm not responding to what you're saying now. <laughs> I'm responding to what has been said to me four decades ago or three decades ago that I have internalized, and it's just the CD is replaying. You know, it's a scratched CD, and it's replaying the same niggin over and over and over. That's a tremendous, that's an unbelievable sense of awareness because it's, it's a game changer. And he shared with me what the story was, what, what, what it triggers in him. And he said, but I could never tell it to her. I could never say this to my wife. I said, why not? He said, it's too embarrassing. It's so embarrassing that uh, that I'm really a two-year-old who looks like like a successful adult, but I'm really a two-year-old. And I told him, I said, it's not embarrassing at all. (laughs) We're all two-year-olds who just look a little older. And that's where real relationships happen. Relationships don't happen when people make believe that they're adults. That's business relationships. I have to be mature. I have to be in a... Real relationships happen when people can go back to their inner child. When people can go back to El Hanar Hazehi Hispalolti. Or as Yehuda says about Binyamin, Eich El El Ovi Vahanar Einenu Iti. Oh, wow. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you. Thank oh, you. Thank you. The Shem explains, how can I go up to my father, the Reboi iti when my little child is not with me? I can't face Hashem if I'm ignoring my inner child. Because then I'm not bringing all of my experiences into the relationship. I can't be close with a person if I don't bring my child into the relationship. If I'm always the perfect adult, it's good for certain situations, I mean, at a business meeting, you probably don't always have to bring in your inner child. But in a real, authentic relationship, that's exactly what I want to bring in. I don't care about the adult in you. The adult, okay. That's the part that's forced to behave. So, eich el avivan, narei nenu iti, Those are the words that Yehuda tells Yosef. He doesn't know it's Yosef. He's speaking to the prime minister of Egypt, and he says, how can I go up to my father without a child? He's not just talking about binyamin. He's talking about the nar in every single person. So I told this person, when you can actually show up with your nar, when you can show up with your inner child, and you can tell your spouse that when you say these words, this is what's coming out, this memory, which may be a suppressed memory. doesn't mean it's a conscious memory. And this is what's happening. Let me tell you what's going to happen. You're now going to take the weakest part of your relationship, the weakest link, and it's gonna become the strongest link in the relationship. And we know that whenever you take the link weakest link and you transform it, that's always what creates the most powerful relationships because it's that point that could have separated us. It's that point that could have created the wedge between us, the gulf, the dichotomy, the separateness. And when I take that very f- force, that very fear, that very insecurity, that very child, that very vulnerability, that very sense of abandonment or neglect or trauma, and I bring that into the connection. I say, I want you to know about this. I want you to understand how I'm affected. There's nothing as powerful as such a relationship henceforth. Because it's that that point that was separating you, that made you mistrust each other, that made her not understand you, and made you feel threatened by her, or the other way around which now becomes the point where you could connect with each other, where she can create space for that experience, and you can create space for her experience, and with compassion and love, you can appreciate what you're going through and be here with each other and for each other to help heal. She can't heal you. You Ultimately, we all have to heal ourselves, but she can help facilitate that process. So in many ways, this is all a brackets, explaining the, the glory of Yom Kippur. That ability to be able to face myself and all my vulnerability. Of course I could talk about my beautiful things. Of course I could talk about my virtues. I could talk about my mitzvahs. I could talk about my achievements and accomplishments. And as the Gemara says, mm-hmm. Even those that you may call the greatest sinners are filled with mitzvahs. Like a pomegranate is filled with seeds. At the Gemara says, At the end of Tractate Chagigah. Just like you can go to your spouse and say, let me tell you about all the good things I do. And sometimes maybe that's a very good thing for people to do. But the greatness of Yom Kippur is that I could face everything. Eich, el lavi, vahanare, nenuiti. I can talk about everything. I could talk about every mistake of mine, and I could try to focus on what is going on, and what are the motives, and what are the fears, and what are the issues, and what are the cravings, and what are the voids, and what are the addictions, and what are the numbers, and what are the distractions. And that conflict resolution creates a very powerful and deep relationship. So back to the question. <laughs> she said, even if I don't have anxiety, and I get it, I know how to apologize, I could say I'm sorry, I can talk about my sins, and I don't get anxious, and I don't get depressed. I get it all. But I want to ask you another question, she writes to Rabbi Jacobs. Is this even true? She says, I look at the people around me in Shul, and I have to say, they are wonderful people. It was really nice to get such an email from somebody. They're just wonderful people. She said, I look at the women sitting around me. They are filled with love, commitment, dedication, loyalty. Do they make mistakes? Of course they make mistakes. They're human. They're not complete. That's part of their greatness. But if you look at their lives, what are their days like? Their days are filled with good deeds, with loving deeds. They're dedicated to their families. They're dedicated to their communities. They're dedicated to the Jewish people. They're dedicated to God. Look at their lives. I don't think it's fair that we should be talking to God and Yom Kippur about how many sins we have. I don't see all these sins. Are there some people who need to correct their lives? Everybody has to correct themselves. Everybody has to become better. Everybody can enhance themselves. But if you look at a sum total, if you want to summarize people's lives, she writes to me, I see so much goodness in people. I don't know why I'm Kippur. I'm going to be telling God and all my colleagues, my friends, and the people in Shul are going to be telling God constantly that I'm a keili mule busha uchlima. I'm a vessel filled with shame and disgrace. Hashem We're poor, we're empty, we're guilty. so even she says if I wouldn't have anxiety there's something bothering me about all of this I have to tell you I like the question very much first of all it was an honest question but also I think it's a very good question because the truth is and I think you'll all agree with me you can look even at the people in this room so many of the people that you and I know are such good people right MS certainly everybody in this room do we make mistakes? Yes. Do we always know exactly the right thing to do? No. But let me tell you something. Most mistakes people make are literally mistakes because they don't have better tools. I don't even see most mistakes as malicious. How many things, think about your own life, honestly. Ask yourself, all the wrong things you did in your life, how many of them were malicious? You really knew you were going to hurt your child. When you said or did X, Y, Z, you really knew you were going to hurt your husband, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your best friend, your classmate, your teacher. And you know what the answer to that is probably close to zero, or maybe zero. LMI, there was a miscalculation. I was out for lunch. I was angry. I was depressed. I was threatened. I was grouchy. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I had a bad cold. I had the flu. I had the fever. I almost had the fever. I had a stomachache. I was going crazy. The cleaning lady hasn't shown up in two weeks. There was no supper. There was no breakfast. There was no lunch. Right? that's So that's that's God, that, That's Hashem's doing. That the cleaning lady didn't show up. Why didn't she show up? You'll realize that most mistakes are really mistakes. And when people become open, the And when their horizons are expanded and when they're given more information and more education and more enlightenment, and that's really the word enlightenment, when there's more light, when there's more light, there's more clarity, when I'm not in the darkness, when I could see things, when I could see consequences, when I could see the ramifications, when I could see long-term results. Of course, people would make a shift immediately unless they simply can't. They're incapable. They're stuck. We spoke a few weeks about the David Hashem Oiri Vishi, remember? I sometimes need the clarity. I, I don't know. I'm clueless. Like the Gemara says, I do an Avera a few times, it becomes a heter. And the Kutzker Rebbe says that's two times, and three times it becomes a mitzvah. I certainly I certainly sur- this is the right way to do it. Sometimes people get stuck in a rut. This is how they did it, this is their mothers did it, this is their babas do it, did it. It's certainly the right way. Maybe years later, I find out maybe there's another path, there's another perspective. Okay, but I really thought I was doing the right thing. I even think back to school in my days; it was still very common in some of your days. I don't know in the girls' schools, but in our schools, it was common when I was a child to. Sp- <laughs> I'm laughing. It wasn't so funny for everybody to in un- the kindergartens. Un- get sometimes some 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 teachers were were angry people. I didn't know this as a child. You know, we just thought we're bad kids. You know, the teacher once turned to the class and he said, "I'm greater than the Maharal of Prague. Maharal of Prague made one golem, and I have nineteen. I have nineteen golems. Uh, <laughs> Now, I thought it was funny at the time. I didn't know that it was. It's really, it's really the wrong thing to say to children. It's really the wrong thing to say to children. I spoke to yesterday to somebody who's an extremely successful businessman, very and a, and a great man and a leader in his community, and, and well-educated well, and learns many hours a day, really a great person. And he told me that there was a comment that was made to him in yeshiva when he was a teenager. One of the teachers said that he has a, a, a krumah cup, which means a, a, a crooked brain. And, and, and even with his crooked head, Such an idea would not be acceptable. And he told me it's decades now, and he's a really successful person. He says that a day does not go by that he doesn't think about it. When he sits down to learn, he asks himself, do I really have such a cursed brain? So it's so important. Now, I could guarantee you that that person doesn't even realize this. I actually told him, go back to him. You haven't spoken to him in a few decades, tell him. People should know this, not, not, a, not in a, an accusatory, harsh way, but in a kind way. Give them an opportunity to say, I'm sorry. I would, I would want that opportunity. So it is so important for people to have awareness. But many of those educators, they didn't have awareness. And what if they were Holocaust survivors or children of Holocaust survivors? I don't have to tell people in this room about that. So I'm telling you, even those mistakes that were serious, I still call them mistakes. Because if you would really speak to the people heart to heart, you would see, maybe, I'm not saying in all cases, but in most cases, they really were trying to do the right thing. People, most Jews I know are always trying to do the right thing. Am I right, Mrs. Klein? Huh? As you always convey in all your beautiful cards. Most people I know. I'm trying to think if I know somebody who sits down in the morning and says, how can I be destructive today? I, I don't know such people. I mean, I was thinking about 9-11, you know, the 19 people who had to get onto planes, knowing that they're going to hijack those planes and crash them into the Twin Towers. What does that take? (laughs) You know, the the, the strategizing to murder as many innocent men, women, and children as possible because they are living in America, even if they're not Americans. Many of the victims were not Americans. Victims of 90 countries were killed on September 11th, 20 years ago. But how many people do you know like that? How many people? I don't know anybody like that. So this woman asked me a gewalda kakasha. She says, why am I going to say a holyam that I'm sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and I'm dalim v'nekim and I have no justification and, and, and I, all I want is your compassion because I'm really such a bad person. She said, I don't think it's true about me. And certainly she said, I'm not going to talk about me, but it's not true about my friends and neighbors. i get the So I want to answer this question publicly. Sometimes we have to know how to tune in to what the real message of Yom Kippur is and what all the confessions are really about. The Zohar says that there are two levels of tshuva. There's something called tshuva tata, and tshuva ilah, tshuva tata tata in Aramaic means lower, ilah in Aramaic means higher. Like tachton elyon in Aramaic, it's tata ilah. So the zaihar, which is written in Aramaic, says there is tshuva tata, which is the basic lower level of tshuva, the first floor, if you wish, and then there's tshuva ilah, which is a more elevated, a more refined, a more inspired, a higher form of tshuva. And these terms, tshuva tata, tshuva ilah, are frequent. Not only is it mentioned in the Zayah, but frequent in the works of Nister, of Machshava, of Hashkofa, of Musar, of Chassidus. <coughs> excuse me, Sifri Chassidus. Where this theme is often not just thrown around or mentioned, but sometimes elaborated upon. Lower level and higher level. What are these two levels of tshuva? What do they mean? And how do they apply to our lives? We know Yom Kippur is about tshuva. The Rambam writes in the laws of Truva that Yom Kippur is the ultimate time of tshuva. ace, kates, mechilo, slich, it's the ultimate time of forgiveness. But what is the forgiveness for? So it sounds like one is truva that you do on big stuff, and then there's a higher level of truva that you do on small stuff. You know, they're not the noticeable, things that are less noticeable. But the truth is that these two levels of tshuva represent completely two different paradigms. And they're not contradictory to each other, but they focus on two different layers of existence. And before I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Did that make sense? Before I tell you what I want to tell you, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. And that is <coughs> that in this generation, especially in our times today, the main avoda of Yom Kippur and all year is not tshuva tata. It's tshuva ilah. It's not the lower level of tshuva. It's the higher level of tshuva. I, I'm going to say again: these are not two, uh, two. This is not a competition between two tshuvas that are butting heads with each other. It's two layers of the same reality. The question is: what am I focusing on? What am I, my emphasis on? They're not contradicting or negating each other, because it's both part of tshuva, and Tshuva is about oneness, so there's never a contradiction. But it's bringing out two different perspectives and what my focus and emphasis is. Let's first focus on tshuva tata. Tshuva tata, the lower level of chuva, is the way tshuva is defined in basic halacha, Jewish law, and in basic svarim that deal with chuva. And that is, it's basically, thank you, it's basically repentance. Even though repentance is not really a Jewish translation of the word tshuva, the translation repentance comes from a non-Jewish translation, The reason we use it in English books is because we need a translation for tshuva. So you repent. The real word for tshuva is return. But let's let's take it at face value. What does repentance mean? Repentance means I acknowledge that I made a mistake. Willingly or unwillingly. I may have slammed the door on your finger. Not willingly. But I made a mistake. I slammed the door and it hurt you. I may have said something. Again, unintentionally. But I don't say I'm sorry only when I did things intentionally. If I slam the door and hurt somebody, I still say I'm sorry. So the basic tshuva is, I acknowledge, I express remorse for something I said or did or even mentally engaged in that was inappropriate, that was wrong. It could be between me and Hashem, between me and a fellow person. As the Rambam, who codified the laws of tshuva first, and then later there's in Shulchan Aruch and many Svarim, Shari Tshuva, from the deal with Tshuva, <coughs> formulated three basic elements of Tshuva Tata. The first is remorse. We call it Harata la Avar. I feel bad. I really feel bad. In other words, I realize that I was clueless. I realized that I was in a bad space. I realized that I was weak. I realized that something overtook me. My Yetzirah overtook me. Whatever manifestation that overtaking happened. And... I come to you and I express remorse. That the remorse comes from within. That's number one. Number two, I express it. This is what we call vidui, confession. I say I'm sorry. It's not just I sit in my own room and I wallow in regret and remorse. I come to the person and I say, I want to apologize to you. I'm sorry. Or we say to Hashem, Al shechatonu Fanacha, In this sin or that sin, we have the list of Al alcheits and everybody adds whatever they want to add. I always say in shul, when we do the Al Alchaits, I tell the the people in Shul, in Arminian, that Khait is a list, but it's an opportunity for everybody to insert whatever they would like to speak about. And it's really, as I said before, it's really a glorious opportunity where God says, I'm stopping everything. I just want, like, to have hear what you have to say. And to be able to fix that and to repair it and to know that there's absolute forgiveness is really a very... Uh, not just healthy, but a very joyous and meaningful experience. <coughs> Excuse me. There's a beautiful word from Simcha Chabinim of Pshischa. He was one of the great Hasidic masters, Simcha Chabinim of the city of Pshischa in Poland. And he asked a very original question. He said, when Jews finish davening the ilah, what do they do right after that? They daven meirev. How does meirev begin? V'hu rachum yichaper God is compassionate and he forgives sin. Later, we dive in Shemrina Esrei, and Mayrev. And in the middle of Shmuel we say, S'lach avinu forgive us, for we have sinned. Rep. Kabinem says, come on. This is off. I don't understand. All day, they were standing in shul with the kittles and talisim, fasting men, women, young and old, and saying, forgive me. Slach l'onu, mecha l'onu, kaper l'onu, me. And God says, Salachti And you finish ne'ilah. you confess again. Ashamnu bagadnu. They finish ne'ilah. What's the slachlonu avinu kichatanu? How many sins do people do between ne'ilah and Mayrev? If after ne'ilah the Shul would say, okay, we're taking a 20-minute break for some juicy gossip. You know, let's talk about the Chazanim. Let's talk about the rabbi sermons. Let's talk about the Gabayim. Let's talk about everything that went wrong in Shul. Nobody does that between Ne'ilah and Meir for the very simple reason that they're hungry. So there's usually no break. We have to convince the chasm to slow down, relax, give us a few minutes after Ne'ilah. Some people have a minute to say some Tehillim after. People are in a rush. I understand. They're starving. (laughs) So they rush into Meiriv. Right away, echaperav, and thank you God for forgiving my sins. Where did you do a sin? And then in Meiriv, Stachler of what did I sin? Great question, you know what he answered? He said that the sin of Mitzayim Kippur is that Jews don't believe that God forgave them. I don't really believe I'm forgiven. I think I'm still filthy, I'm still dirty, I'm still stained. He says, that's the sin. Where did I sin? I just spent the whole day in asking forgiveness. I don't really believe you forgave me. I still don't trust the relationship. I still feel there's an issue between us because something happened. He says, That's a sin. Trust God. If you trust God, somebody wrote me an email a few days ago. I did show her, but I don't think Hashem has forgiven me. So I wrote back to him this line. I said, if you believe that Hashem exists and that what you did is a sin because he said you shouldn't do it, do you believe that? So he writes back, of course I believe it. I said, based on what? He says, because the Torah says, God says that this is a sin. I said, so you trust the Torah? He says, yeah, that's why it's a sin. So I said, the same Torah, the same God says that when you repent, he forgives. Does Paul get in the book, I I trust you 50%, the other 50%, I don't trust you. When he tells you you sin, you trust God. When he tells you I forgave you, sorry, I don't trust you. I said, don't blame that on Judaism. That's an innate element of guilt and anxiety that we have to deal with. You'll only trust Hashem when he says you're bad. When he says you're good, sorry, I can't accept that. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. So, Reb Simcha said, For this I say, So the basic level of tshuva is in itself a tremendous idea that with these steps of remorse for the past and confession of my mistakes and planning a new way forward for tomorrow, which we call Kabbalah al resolution for the future. These are basically the three steps of tshuva, even though each one has, of course, many different aspects and nuances and details. And when one does this, Hashem says, you are forgiven. As the Rambam famously says, There's nothing that stands in the path of tshuva, as he puts it, Even somebody who denied Hashem's existence throughout his or her entire life, and at the end, the person does tshuva. There is complete forgiveness. He brings the example of Menashe, the king of Yisr, the king of the Jewish people. Menashe was, of course, the son of Chizkiyah HaMelech, but he did not mirror the behaviors of his father. He was a king for fifty-five years, and the Tanakh testifies that he was the most heinous criminal in the history of Jewish leadership. What Menashe did during those fifty-five years is indescribable. He was really a vicious and it seems like malicious evil king. And even Menashe. Towards the end of his life, his tshuva was accepted, and the Gemara says in Sanhedrin that the Malachim told God, "It's not fear; It doesn't make sense. This guy is a real low life. He's despicable." And the Malachim told Hashem, "We're not letting him come to you. You know, they're like the Gaboyim that don't let you go in. So they didn't want to. So what did Hashem do? You know what the Gemara says: chatira God dug a tunnel." under the Kisah cover, to let Menashe come in. Now that's very strange. Hashem doesn't have Balabatoshkeit. The Gabay really owns everything. You grew up in Bnei Brak. I mean, you lived in Bnei Brak. The Gabai runs everything? Like, no, no, no. You, God, you don't, you don't call the shots? Like the Malachim say, you have no access, there's no access. That's not a good way to run, <laughs> to run a world. They decide, and what if they're making a mistake? And what if they don't see the full picture? You have to understand what the Chazal means. The Malachim tell Hashem are not letting him. And God agrees. He's like, okay, don't let him. I'm, bu- I'm building a tunnel. And he builds a tunnel. We'll soon see what that means. But this is the concept of tshuva, that is absolute forgiveness. That's tshuva tata. So tshuva tata, I focus on my wrongdoings. And unless I'm guilt-ridden with anxiety, as I said before, it's a wonderful thing, a wonderful opportunity in life. To be able to take stock, to be able to make a Kashman an Nefesh a reckoning of my soul, and to have somebody I could talk to about it. And not just somebody, but the creator of the world. The creator of the whole world and the creator of all Tyre mitzvahs says, "Let's have a conversation about it. I'm here. I want to listen to everything. And you, can, as I said before, you could be as vulnerable as you want, which the Tfilos are pretty are, are pretty vulnerable. I would say if you could just hear your own voice in the words, you could see how vulnerable they are in terms of a person really exposing herself or herself and laying their soul and body and mind bare, which is the essence of all real healing and reconciliation, all real therapy work, all real connection work, all real tshuva. That's tshuva tata. So what's tshuva ilah? Tshuva Tata is the tshuva that's usually articulated in Halacha because it's the basic, revealed aspect of tshuva, the way it comes out in Nigla, which means the concretized element of Torah of Halacha. This tshuva Ila, the says. What's tshuva law? Tshuva ilah is the higher level of tshuva. This takes us into a different space. The higher level of tshuva is basically... Not focusing on my wrongdoings. The higher level of Truva means, here Truva means returning. Truva is the discovery of how holy I am. Not allowing my mistakes or my sins to define me and make me believe that that is who I am. In Truva Tata, I'm focusing precisely on my mistakes. I'm zooming into that. I come to you and I say, I'm sorry for X, Y, and Z. That's tshuva Tata. Shuva Ilah, what I'm focusing on is that at my core, in my essence, I was never separated from Hashem. I can't ever be separated from Hashem. I can't be detached. I can't be disconnected. Even if I made mistakes, and even if I sinned, and even if I sinned willingly. And even if I violated the blueprint and I caused damage to myself or others. Nonetheless, there's a quintessential truth about the human soul that since you are a chalik eleikami ma'amash, the nisham is literally a piece of Hashem. So just as like Hashem is not getting filthy or dirty or tainted or tarnished, your essence, your truth, your true identity is completely aligned, not just aligned, it's a manifestation of the enceif, of Hashem's infinite oneness and light. When you say that a soul is a chelik aleikam imal, it means that it's a derivative, so to speak, of Hashem's consciousness, of Hashem's reality, of Hashem's oneness. That space inside of me is invincible. It's It's indestructible. Just like Hashem is invincible and indestructible, That space in me is invincible, which means even if I have been through difficult situations that I may have experienced and endured as a result of what other people said or did, again, maybe in times when I was even too young to process it emotionally, or intellectually, and therefore went in into a very deep place, what we call pre-verbal internalization, things that were internalized before I had words even, so I never processed it, and I don't even know that it's lurking there. Even if all that may be true and may be affecting me, but it's affecting the me that I'm processing right now. It's affecting a more external level of me. But there is a deeper layer of me that is always wholesome, always holy, always splendid, always sacred. It's elakus, it's divine. The Balatani used to say, Ayid yid evil or nisht eken, sein abgishet von elakus. A Jew now, nor can he, nor does he want, or she want, be separated from Hashem. It's the DNA of your soul. It's the DNA of your brain. It's the DNA of your mind. It's the DNA of your body. We say in Haidu in the morning every day from Tehillim, In his space, there is eyes and Chedva. What's eyes? Eyes means confidence, like Hashem eyes Eyes like strength, confidence, competence. Chedva. It means joy. Chedva, sasen, v'simcha, these are all expressions of joy. So when you say, oiz v'chedva in Hashem's space, there's confidence and there's joy. What is David HaMelech telling us? He's telling us, how do you ever know in life if you're in Hashem space or outside of Hashem's space? Now the truth is, I can't be outside of Hashem's space. Because, malay chalar, it's Or as Uncle Moishi, right, teaches, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is really everywhere, up, up, down, down. <laughs> but even before Uncle Moshe the Zayar says there's no space devoid of him <laughs> Chazal say Hashem revealed himself to Moshe from a thorn bush to tell him even in the thorns of a person's life I look at my, certain behaviors of mine my, certain parts of my neural pathways they seem thorny I'm there too but in my perception I could be out of a space How do I know if I'm in my perception out of his space? And the answer is, if I'm in a place of confidence and joy, then I'm in Mekayma, in his space. If I'm not in a place of confidence and joy, I'm outside of his space. Now what does joy mean? Joy doesn't mean there's no pain. There's a difference between pain and suffering. There's a Holocaust survivor, she's a therapist in La Jolla. You may have heard of her, Edith Ager, Dr. Edith Ager. She's in her 90s. The Choice, yeah. It's an incredible book. She wrote the book at the age of 90 or 91. She was in Auschwitz. And just uh, an incredible, incredible person. And she lives in La Jolla. She's still a practicing therapist. She's from Budapest, from Hungary. The Choice and then the Gift. Why did I mention her? Hi. Oh, so she says as follows. She says, she, says, so she has a line there. That suffering I, can't cho- suffering, I couldn't choose if I'm going to suffer or not. But victimhood is a choice I have to make. Am I a victim or not? What she's basically distinguishing is, I'll put it a little bit in different words, there's pain and there's suffering. Pain is a reality. If somebody loses a loved one, there is pain. And to deny that pain would be cruel. To say, oh, it's not painful, it's wonderful, it's cruel. Or even, let's just move on. That's why in halacha, there's 12 months of Avelis. You don't just say, oh, snap your finger, it's time to move on. A person moves on, but it's not simple. It's a very challenging transition. Because pain is real. If something was amputated from me, a person experiences the depth of the pain. And the more sensitive you are, the more pain. And the more love there was, the more pain. If there was not love, there would be no pain. So the pain is actually commensurate with the depth of the love. But there is a difference between pain and suffering. Suffering means when a person feels that the pain is just meaningless, just purposeful, just purposelessness. It just breaks them and discourages them and demoralizes them and puts them into a state of despondency. Oiz v'chedva b'mkayme doesn't mean there's no pain, but it means that at every moment a person realizes that there's a journey that there's a picture that's larger than I am, that souls are eternal. And that even if things are unfathomable and we don't understand so much, but that there is meaning and there's value in every moment, that every soul is eternal, that every moment has absolute dignity, that every relationship lives on. So, how do I know that I'm in his space? I know because there's confidence and joy in his space. So, Dr. Edith Ager tells a story that she was on the train... There was three sisters and parents. And she was on the train from Budapest to Auschwitz. They didn't know they are going to Auschwitz, of course. And uh, they were on the train for a few days. And she says that her mother turned to her. She was, I think, 16 years old. And her mother told her these words. She said, Edith. By the way, her name is Edith Eger. She's a grandchild of Rabbi Kiva Eger. Yeah, people don't know that. Rabbi Kiva Eger who was considered one of the greatest luminaries of the Jewish people in Poland until today, In all the yeshivas, the teachings of Akiva Eger are studied with tremendous alacrity because of his depth and brilliance. So she's uh, from that family, the Akiva Eger's family. In any case, <coughs> her mother—excuse me her mother tells her that, I want you to remember one thing, and that is, people can take away everything from you. They cannot take away what you put into your own head. What you put into your own head, this will always belong to you. She said five minutes after her mother said these words, the trains came to a striking halt, the doors opened, and the SS and the Gestapo, the Shemam, with their dogs, began barking and screaming, raus, raus, the Jews should come out. She didn't know this at the time, but within her, uh, an hour, her mother was in the gas chambers. She and her sisters were sent to the barrack. <coughs> and she said she was in a barrack. I don't know if those of you who visited it, I me mean, call it a barrack. It's surprising how people could live there. It was t- unbearable conditions, planks of wood. And you can have 10 people, 10 girls on one bed. At night, she was starving. Remember, they were on the train for a few days without food and water. They came to Auschwitz, they didn't give them anything. That night, they also didn't give them anything. She was days without food and water, literally emaciated, crippled on every level. You know, when people are starving, you know, we know Yom Kippur one day, right? And if it goes two days and three days and four days, nobody even understands what it does to people. Like, you lose your whole humanness and dignity, which is what the Germans wanted to do. And inside the barrack, there's a visitor. Who comes in? Joseph Mengele, Yamach Shemai, the angel of death, who loved music. And he says, I heard, I heard that we have a skilled dancer who came from Hungary. Is this dancer here? So she says, yes, me. And she goes and she says, okay, so I want you to dance before me. So the last thing she wanted to do was dance after days of not eating and drinking and after finding out what happened to her parents, so it was the last thing she wanted to do. But she realized that this is important. To keep her life, To keep her alive. So she begins dancing. She remembers what her mother just told her that morning. The only thing they can't take away from you is what you put in your mind. So she says, in my mind I wasn't standing here in Auschwitz in a barrack in front of Mengele. In her mind she was in the Budapest opera. And she said she danced that night in the most passionate, enthusiastic way that she's ever danced in her whole life. To the point that this Yamach Shemaynik was so impressed that he threw her a whole loaf of bread. And he left. For her, that meant literally life. But she had her sisters and she had the other people on her bed, so she divided the loaf between all of them, and they all got a piece of bread that night. And she describes... At the end of the war, as you know, they all went on a death march. At that point, she was weighing less than 70 pounds. (coughs) Her back was broken. And at some point, she couldn't walk. If you stopped walking, you were shot. And those four girls who she gave bread the first night created an artificial seat, and they carried her. And that's how she was saved. So she was explaining the power of people's thoughts, how you think about yourself. You know, we don't imagine the power of those thoughts, but it really creates a different reality in my brain. Tracht gut sein gut is not just a nice Jewish positive way of looking at things, you know, why not? Tracht schlecht. Tracht gut sein gut. Why not, you know? Let's give people, you know, a little hope. It's a reality. sein gut means that my thoughts create real changes. They create real changes in my brain in my energy, in my home, in my children, in people around me. It, it creates different dynamics in the world. We don't always know exactly what and how and when and how it comes back to us. Thinking positive doesn't mean a person is naive. Doesn't mean that a person is in la-la land. Doesn't mean a person doesn't have to do what they have to do based on Hashem's will that we take care of ourselves in the best way possible. But thinking positive means when I have a choice to look at something in different ways and different perspectives... I can either focus on the negative or focus on the positive. So here we come now to what the real essence of true vilal means. True vilal means to be able to know that in my core, I am in Hashem's space always because I am Him. I am one with Him. There's no separation. So over there, there's confidence and there's joy and there's optimism and there's purity and there's holiness and there's splendor and there's glory. I am telling myself, look what you did yesterday. Look what you're about to do. Look at this mistake. Look at that mistake. All those voices are voices that are not capturing the true essence of me. And sometimes those voices can actually be Yetzirah's voices that want to take me down. I, what if those voices are real? There is serious setbacks, serious challenges. Maybe psychological, mental, moral, spiritual, emotional. I am bruised. I am bruised. I got an email this morning, I'm sharing, I'm sharing all this, it's a vulnerable time. A 18-year-old boy tells me, I'm a yeshiva boy, I learn in yeshiva. Eight years, I'm suffering every day from depression. I wake up in the morning, my parents sent me to every psychiatrist in the world. I mean, every psychiatrist in the zip code. Every psychologist, every therapist, eight years later, I'm still in the same place. Rabbi Jacobson, do you have any advice for me? These are heart-wrenching emails of people. I get a lot of these types of emails. What do you tell such a person? I'm not a psychiatrist. I can't, medi- I can't <coughs> prescribe medication. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a social worker. But this person, he says, my parents sent me everywhere. Now tell me what is going on. The worst thing, I didn't answer the email yet. Maybe I hope he's listening. But the worst thing I can do at such moments is really describe myself as a lost case really describe myself as somebody who's just essentially damaged goods. We do it, but that is the antithesis of truth, and it's the greatest weapon of my Sahara to take me away from all levels of tshuva. Because when somebody is just experiencing guilt and how bad they are, what's the next step? The Tanya says in chapter 26, when you feel horrible about yourself, what do you want to do? What do people do when they feel pain? They want to get rid of the pain. So if I'm feeling horrible of myself, I want to get rid of the pain. What am I going to do? (laughs) I'm going to do anything that gives me pleasure. And if I'm feeling horrible about myself, it's usually not going to be something very productive and spiritual. So the Yetzirah is brilliant. Make people feel guilty and bad about themselves. And the next step is usually they do something destructive. That's why you have to be so careful with guilt. (laughs) People think guilt is a very Jewish thing. Guilt is the essence of Yom Kippur with guilt you have to be very careful because i would say 90% of guilt is coming straight from the Yitzhahara as a tremendous method of getting a peep, of getting a person into a spiritual dustbin if the Yitzhahara would come to me and say rabbi why why i think you should sin today i have a good sin for you here go to this and this place and sin he may think he's not going to get me so he does something much clever he says by the way rabbi why why you're a sensitive guy right I want to point out to you what you said yesterday <laughs> in the class. Do you see what a mistake you made? Oh, this is geshmak. It's a Sahara. Chesh ben nefesh Wants me to be reflective. He gave me a compliment about my sensitivity, right? But what does he want? He wants me to become a mess. Not to fix what I did, but to come to the conclusion that I am a guilty person. I'm a bad person. And then the next step is, for me, donuts are not good. But if I'm feeling horrible, there's a donut on the on the on the counter. You need to do something to give yourself pleasure. But it's all the Yitzhar. It's a much better way than telling people go do an aveira. Much better. It sounds Jewish. It sounds holy. It sounds beautiful. It sounds Musadik. Do you realize what a bad person you are? I'm a chaya. You got the person. So thoughts are so critical and so important. Tshuva law then is tshuva. For the fact that I think that at my core I have to do tshuva. Tshuva Tata is focusing on what I have to do tshuva. I made mistakes. Tshuva ilah is focusing on your own ilah, on your own highest and deepest space, which is your real essence. You're never out of that space. The only question is how much I perceive it, how much I'm conscious of it, how much I live with it, how much I breathe it. But that space, just like nobody can destroy Hashem, nobody can destroy you. Tshuva ilah is returning to that space and realizing I am not my sins, I am not my mistakes, I am not my traumas, I am not my wounds, I am not my anger, I am not my fears, I am not insecurities. On the contrary, all those things came about because I was not me. Because I was not in touch with how powerful I am, with how beautiful I am, with how glorious I am, with how sacred I am, with how splendid I am, with how divine I am. If I would have been in touch with that... I wouldn't need all these things. I wouldn't. I'm not. Go, I don't. I'm not going there. It's not doing anything for me. It's alien to me. It's foreign to me. It's a complete uh, aberration of my inner identity and what I'm really yearning for and craving for. There's a beautiful verse from the Halikasat Satmarov, Zechatzadek Levracha, the Divrei Yoel, Rabbi Yoel, title by him. The Satmirov writes. He says, we say." Hayyim haras eylam hayyim yamad ba mishpat kol yitzrei eylam imke banim imka You remember imke banim rachameinu rachamav banim vimka vadem enenu lechaslu yashet chareinu vesetz l'etz kenu yam kadesh which means as follows we tell hashem we say either treat us like children or like servants if you see us as children or we see ourselves as children, then you should just have compassion, like a father, like a tati has compassion on his kindalach. You know what? If we see us as servants, then we just look up to you, and we're waiting for your grace. So the Sat says, what's, the, what's exactly this, what are we giving God this multiple choice? If we're children, then we're not looking up to you and waiting for your grace. We just say like, have Rachmanus. And if we're servants, then we can't say have Rachmanus because we're like servants. So basically, we're like hoping for the best. What's this, what's this choice that we're giving God? So he says as follows. that The Gemara says in Meseches Kiddush and Davlam vav there's an argument between Reb May and Reb Yehuda. Reb Yehuda says that when Jews behave like children, they're called Hashem's children. Banim Atem is when you behave like a child. If you don't behave like a child, you're not a child. You're a stranger. The says no you're always called a child if you behave, if you don't behave and he brings fopkkim that even when Jews were engaged in idolatry and in the worst sins, they're still children. but they' I can't trust them but they're my children. they may be corrupt have corrupt ways, but they're bonim. he brings fo. Now usually, we have a principle in all of Shaz. The Gemara says in Erev in 13 that Reb Meir was the brightest sage of his time. He was called Mayer, which means or, light, because he was Meir En. Chachamim. He illuminated the eyes of the Jews with halacha. And yet, in all of the arguments between him and the other sages, they never took his view as halacha. His view is always respected, but it didn't become the halacha. They always took the other view. The Bezdin, always passing according to the majority. They rejected the mayor for his other son. Why? So the Gumara says, Because they couldn't understand the depth of his words. And therefore they couldn't deal with it. In you know that they all knew that he's in a different league. He's saying things, but his explanations were beyond them. So it's so paradoxical. And when you're halacha, like it has to make sense. The logic has to make sense. And since they all knew they don't understand Reb Meir, so they literally said, Reb Meir, we don't get you. So the Satmirov says like this In the argument between Rabbi Huda and the Chereb Meir, Rabbi Huda says, when you behave like a child, you're a child. When you don't behave like a child, you're not a child. Rabbi Meir says, no. You're always called a child. She so says, in most cases, we say Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Huda, like Rabbi Huda, but not here. Because what's the reason we didn't pass in the Lacha like Rabbi Meir? Because nobody could understand Seif nobody could understand the depth of his wisdom. But Hashem doesn't know the depth of Rib Meir's wisdom. So when Rib Meir said that Jews are always children, Hashem did know the depth of his wisdom. So the halacha is like Rib Meir, he says, that's what we say Im if we're like children, Rachameinu aval bonim, have compassion. Like a father has comparison If you're going to say that Allah is like Rabbi Yehuda. So we're not behaving well, so we're like servants. So we're looking up to you. You know the real opinion behind Rabbi Meir. You know the real understanding behind Rabbi Meir. So there's no such a thing. We're just servants. We're always bonam at him Because eneinu lechos By us, maybe Rabbi Yehuda is right, but you understand the depth of Rabbi Meir. So therefore we're always bonim. There's no such a thing as avadam. So we have two different layers of tshuva. Now let's bring it all back. Different generations focus on different levels of tshuva. There's always both. Both, it's all part of Torah. But there's generations that focus more on the nigla of tshuva and more on the nister of tshuva. The nigla of tshuva is again the concretized, practical tshuva. I made a mistake. I did a sin. I have remorse. I apologize. And I make a Kabbalah resolution for the future. The nister of Chuva goes to the nister of the person and is discussed in the nister of Torah, the esoteric dimensions of Torah, which discusses the fact if you go to your own nister, the only thing you have to do tshuva for is the fact that you think you have to do tshuva. The worst sin that you have is that you think you're a sinner, that you think you're bad, you're evil, you're messed up, you're alienated, you're detached. The level where I'm detached is an external level. For that I have to do tshuva tata. But when I go to a deeper place, the tshuva is, what's the tshuva? The tshuva is recognizing my true self. Now that sometimes takes a lot of tshuva. Because it's hard. You would say, oh, that's easy. We know it's not easy. Sometimes it's easier for people to go into a default mode that I'm a sinner, that I'm alienated. So what's the Shamnu, bagadnu gazalnu anyem Kipper with tshuva ilah? When I tell God... I'm filled of sins. I'm focusing on my mistakes. If somebody's anxiety ridden, it's very hard. That's why I explained you have to transcend anxiety to be able to deal with vidu. But this lady was asking back to the question. People are good. People are holy. And you know what? She's absolutely right. And that's why I heard from my rebbe that primarily... In our times, the main shuvah, of course we have to do tshuva tata. And if I hurt somebody, I need to apologize, and I should apologize. And if I made a mistake, willingly or unwillingly, I could correct it, I could fix it, we could fix it. And it's an amazing opportunity. But what's the focus? What's the focus? The focus is tshuva tata in the context of tshuva illah. And that is that the reason I made all these mistakes is because I didn't know me. Because I wasn't aware of me. Because I wasn't in touch with me. And maybe I'm having a very difficult time with that. And that's where my avayda is. To discover your innate divine beauty. To discover your innate divine glory. To discover that you are a chile kele And here is where the sin comes in. The Yetzharah comes in to every many Jews, and especially in our generation, and has four words for you. And the four words are, miyani omani. Who am I and what am I? The Yetzirah says, come on, give me a break. These classes of Rabbi Waiwai are good in theory. But I know the truth about myself. I know what I think when I wake up in the morning. I know what I think when I go to sleep at night. I know what I'm dealing with. There's so many issues, even if you don't want to call it sins. But I'm dealing with doubts and problems and trauma, wounds and challenges and setbacks. I have so many stuff. You think... (laughs) <laughs> that Hashem is going to dwell in you I'm going to dwell in them and the people Shlomo Amalek when he built the Beis HaMikdash he said you know what he said when he built the Beis HaMikdash he said Shlomo was talking to God and Melachim Aleph he says it happened actually these days the Chanukah Beis HaMikdash was on Ches Tishrei the first Beis HaMikdash and it went for 14 days they ate on Yom Kippur that year it was real tshu So Shleim Malik tells Hashem, he says, I don't understand. The heavens and the heavens of heavens can't contain you. And this house could contain you? Heavens can't contain Hashem. The heavens of heavens, how large is the universe? So the universe that we know is basically approximately 28 billion years. That's a lot. 28 billion light years. <laughs> light travels 186. Thousand miles per second. Okay? 28 billion light years. Think about what a year of light means. A second is 186,000 miles for light. That's the universe we know. That could contain Hashem. No, Hashem is infinite. This house could contain Hashem. What is it? A joke? So Shleim Malik is asking like a rhetorical question. But the truth is, as it says in Svarim, he's not just saying it can't. That's what Hashem says. Yes, in my infinity, I can also go into this house. Don't limit my infinity. Don't tell me because I'm infinite, I can only be infinite. I can also be in this house. means in your heart. Comes the Yetzirah and says, I know my thoughts, I know my depression, I know my mental challenges, I know my stress, I know my anxiety, I know my avaris, I know my machshavah I know what happened yesterday and a year ago and ten years ago. And who are you going to fool? You can't fool Hashem. Don't think you can have a real relationship with God. Don't think you can have a glorious life. Don't think you could be a living manifestation of Hashem in this world. Don't think that you could confront all of your blockages and all of your addictions and all of your traumas. Just acknowledge the fact too much has happened. There's too much toxicity. There's a certain point where God says, you're messed up, sorry. Maybe I'll see you in another Gilgal. Whatever the form of this argument takes on, For this, I have to do tshuva. For this, I have to do tshuva. That's today's tshuva. You know what's today's tshuva? Today's tshuva, of course, I have to fix my mistakes. But the real tshuva of today is that people don't believe and don't imagine how good they are. And you know how I know it's today's tshuva? Because it's the hardest thing for people. It's easier for people to say today, I made mistakes, I'm a bad Jew. That's, okay, not everybody, but people have not, not, they don't have such a hard time doing it. I'm telling you, I'll show you 5% of the emails I get, everybody, I'm bad in this, I'm bad in that. You know what the A's is really opposed to today? Saying how good you are. And I'm not talking about it in an arrogant, haughty, foolish, immature way, oh, I'm good, I'm perfect, I'm impeccable, I'm flawless, I'm, you know... Mr. Perfect, Miss Perfect. This is really the deepest humility. Because when I speak about my goodness, what does it really mean? It means that I'm part of Hashem's infinity. It's not about my ego. This doesn't make people more control freaks or more narcissistic. It means that my goodness is a reflection of Hashem's goodness. Who am I really? I am an ambassador of God in this world. I am an ambassador of love and light and hope and healing and authenticity and wisdom and redemption. The Gemara says in Kiddushin, shluch Adam Kamaisa. a shliach of somebody is like the person who sent him. Adam is Adam HaElion, Hashem is called Adam HaElion. So, Shluchanim is a Jew who realizes that he or she is a shliach of Hashem. You manifest Hashem's properties. That's who I really am. I'm trauma. I'm traumatized. I may have stuff inside of me. But they're inside of me. They're contained by my infinity. I define them. They don't define me. This is hard for people. You know how I know? The most pushback I get for my classes is when I say these things. If I tell people how bad they are, Baruch Hashem, wonderful. If you tell people they're good, it's not true. (laughs) You're taking away from people, let them know how bad they are. The most pushback. Why is this the most pushback? What's so wrong with telling Jews that they're holy? Because then people will get spoiled, they think they don't have to do tshuva. Because the Yitzhahara doesn't want this from people. The real that we are divine, that you are absolutely amazing. And it doesn't mean you didn't make mistakes, it doesn't mean I shouldn't acknowledge my shortcomings. On the contrary, when I know how amazing I am in essence, then I could look at my shortcomings and say, I don't need this. These don't have to belong to me. I don't have to go back into that trap, into that orbit. When you see your greatness, when you see your awesomeness, when you see your infinity, so anything that's not reflecting your infinity is like, this doesn't belong to me. Of course I want to get rid of this. If I have to apologize, then that's what I do. Remorse, regret, the future. So tshuva tata happens automatically, but it's in the context of my greatness. If I'm wearing a suit, and the suit is dirty and filthy, somebody poured orange juice, and then somebody poured apple juice, and then somebody poured grape juice, and then, somebody juice and then somebody's walking with, you know, they give it a Hasen, chocolate mousse cake with vanilla ice cream, right? You know those desserts when they spill on you? It's like a combination of chocolate and vanilla. It's the perfect disaster. Whatever you do for chocolate doesn't work because you have vanilla. Whatever you do for vanilla doesn't work because you have chocolate. And he pours it on my soup, my suit. My okay the cleaner's bill will be the same this schmutz, that schmutz but if I'm wearing this impec- you put on this impeccable outfit or I'm wearing this impeccable bagot it's a light, it's a shine it's a it's, it's beautiful it's luminescent and then somebody pours the chocolate mousse and vanilla on me, then I, I don't feel good about it I want to go change, why? because it's too clean, it's too beautiful when you appreciate how beautiful you are, how clean you are, how white, how bright, how luminescent, how divine, how sacred. Now when there's a stain, it's like this is I pay too much money for this garment. I invested too much time in finding it and getting the tailor to do exactly what I did what I wanted to do. It was not easy, it took her three weeks, and it still wasn't ready for the Khasana. And now now that's even a garment which a garment ultimately is a disposable item when you're talking about your soul the tshuva tata in that context is real it's enduring, it's authentic it builds the Yitzhahorah doesn't, doesn't feed off it the Imkibonim as the Satmei Rebbe said Hashem always knows the MS and that's why he dug a tunnel now you understand the tunnel the Malachim were focusing on tshuva tata <laughs> and they said listen There comes a certain point where you can't apologize anymore. You know, you punch me in the face once, I'm sorry. Tomorrow you punch me in the face again, I'm sorry. At some point, I'm like, jump into the Hudson River. Or if you want, it could be the Pacific. Stop apologizing to me. You're dishonest, you're disingenuine. The Malachim tell God that's like, you know, everybody could just play you that way. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, chuva, chuva. Malachim said, sorry, it's unacceptable. Hashem digs a tunnel. I don't think it means he took a shovel and he started to dig tunnels. The moral of Prague says this. He digs a tunnel means he has to reveal the tunnel of the person's soul. I have to be able to realize that the basement, the foundation of my soul is much deeper than I ever imagined. You know, what's a tunnel? You look at the surface, there's nothing here. It's just ground. But you go deeper. There's tunnels and tunnels. Teshlaim Amalek built the Harabayas. But Matmainius he built tunnels. You ever went to the Kaisal tunnels? And Yoshio hid the Oren over there. Matmainius amukas. Sometimes tunnels could go for miles. The Yamachamainiks, the Hamas, what they built from Gaza to going into Israel. But what's the concept of a tunnel? I look at the surface, it seems that this is the bottom, right? There's nothing deeper. Ay ay ay, you never realize the depth of an hashama. Sometimes I look at myself, I never see my tunnels, I never see my depth. I don't know my depth. I let go of my depth maybe many years ago because there was a lot of pain over there. So I never, I never reached out to it, I never discovered it. So Hashem says, let's discover the tunnels. And the moment, covered, on a tunnel level you see that your pathway to Hashem was never obstructed. You don't need the malachim to get there. You're always one. You're always connected. So there comes a time when the main focus of truva is tshuva ilah. To be able to say to Hashem, you know what my greatest sin is? My greatest sin is that I don't know how attached I am to you. I don't know how holy I am. Help forgive my sin. Help me realize every moment of the day that I am an indispensable note in the cosmic symphony. That I am... Hashem's infinite light in this world. Okay, this is a guy who sends me. He's a friend of mine. He's a ben He says, I'm in, the, I'm in awe of the Bali musar, who speaks so much about our sins. The deepest parts of my soul connect with it. But it assumes a very strong level of self-esteem that most of us don't possess. Chazal assumed that... People take for granted how good they are, so therefore the Chazal could focus on the negativity. But we live in a generation when people don't know how good they are, and they don't take it for granted. I think we have to think about other things. As the the generations progressed, I think our self-esteem was lost, our self-confidence, our certainty that Hashem recognizes us for the basically good people we are. We don't have that anymore. (laughs) We don't think we're good people. So we need external reminders. And he says, that's why Rav Cook, Rav 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 Akoyan Kook he says like this just as people do a confession of their sins, sometimes it's important for them to do a confession of their goodness. I'm going to read you the confession that Rav Cook wrote, okay? Ahavnu bachinu gamalnu, dibarnu yoyfi heemanu v'hishtadalnu zacharnu chibaknu taamnu sefer yatsarnu Kamahinu kamahinu lahamnu <laughs> afurhat sadak Mitsinu asataiv nisinu Sarnu risa sinu ashatzi bisanu peyrashnu sadaknu lipamim karanu bishma kharatu sinu samakhnu tamkhinu I'll translate. <laughs> yeah yeah. I'll translate. We loved, we cried. We were generous, we spoke Nicely and lovingly, we believed, we tried, we remembered, we embraced, we studied, we created, we longed, we fought for justice, we tried to accentuate the good, we attempted, we directed our vision to see, we opened our eyes to see, we did what you told us, we expounded. We were right sometimes, we called that in your name, we desired, we rejoiced and brought joy to others, and we supported others. That's a good question. Does tshuva ilah also have to be verbal? All tshuva, when, whenever, whenever there's tshuva, it's good that it's verbal. It's not the same level like tshuva tata. Tshuva ilah is really a shift in consciousness. The truth is all tshuva is a shift in consciousness, but it's always good when it's verbal. Although with tshuva law it's not a condition like tshuva tato. Tshuva ilo, it says in Tanya, is expressed in Torah. And in Simcha, it's dveikos. Tshuva ilo is dveikos. It's realizing how close we are. Hashem, you say, Malchus Shal that he was sitting in this consciousness of tshuva law And shifting from the word tshuva. Beautiful. Beautiful, yeah. I like it. It makes a lot of sense. Call you Mechaya. He was asking... He was asking, I should always sit in this place. A good bench to everybody. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at wwwtheyeshivanet slash donate.